Um, we can start. Might as well get it rolling. So basically, yeah. So like, I was in Bridge Park. It was just me, like a few other like student orgs. We just like went up there, went to check it out. It was my first time like seeing the place. It's like this really cool like new new bridge that goes over the Scioto River. Mixed use development. They got like this like North Market thing where it's like you know food and all these like different flavors. fitness yoga cycling yeah it's just like a really cool hip new place then you cross the bridge and there's like more commercial that you can access so i was like completely just like so what is it does it connect like campus with no no no. dublin's like about like a 20 minute drive from campus. oh it's out in dublin okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah That's yeah cool. it, it's really nice though it's like weather was perfect we went for a walk we like you know grabbed ice cream and um we, 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 we try to go to like this place called Mechanical Pins, which is like, it's a bar, but it has like, you know, bowling alleys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Um, but it was like super packed. So we didn't really stay a whole time. Um, we went to my brokerage because my brokerage office is up there. And uh, um, our team leader, he was there, he came up starts talking about like, why Columbus is like the place to be and talked about the Intel factory that's being developed, Amazon purchasing land. Like 70 or 80 people are being born in Columbus or, uh, yeah, being born in Columbus every year. So it's just like dropping all these facts and stats. And Yeah, the Intel plant should be interesting. Did he give oh, yeah. you much of the scoop on that or? I mean, everyone's talking about it. Everyone knows that it's like you're bringing in all these six-figure income salaries to the city. So that obviously just stimulates the economy for people um, coming from San Francisco where maybe they were making also six figure salaries, but the cost of living was so high Then you come to Columbus and it's just like, you know, you can buy a house now. Was this a, is that where it got relocated from? Like California or is this one of replacing one of the like uh, Taiwan or South Korean chip manufacturers? I'm not sure if it's like replacing anybody. I just know that it's, it's going down. Um, so it's weird though because um, that project I think I sent you about the one we did in North Charleston. Like I was researching South Carolina, even North Carolina. North Carolina has like this huge investment in silicon factory kind of stuff, and you know they're calling they, they want to call Ohio like the Silicon Prairie, right? So like <laughs> Silicon Valley. Then North Carolina is like, oh, we're going to be called the Silicon Harbor. So like everyone's trying to market their city and you know, align their city to be like all about Silicon. No, that's pretty cool. I think, I think as an extension of all of the supply chain disruption we've seen, yeah, people are starting to put a focus on bringing some of this manufacturing back to the U S. So it'll be interesting to see if we can support this kind of advanced manufacturing. Like if we have the skilled laborers to do it, like I know this plant in Columbus, I think they want to put basically like a, tech school or like a trade school in to, uh, as a pipeline um, yeah. for workers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's opportunity. I think there's potential. Um, I, I think the issue is like whether or not people want to work. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a problem. Um, but let me ask you this. So you, you said, you said you follow John on Twitter. I, I try to do a little quick search of him. Yeah. Um, and just for the audience, though, John John Davis is one of my professors here at OSU. Um, he he kind of talks a lot about. Um, yep. Yep. There he is. Oh wow. 
You found oh, them? Car yep, I found them. That's right. Wow. Dang. Yeah, he just retweeted the, the, the train crash thing. Yeah, I've been trying to follow that a little bit. It's Twitter's crazy right now. Actually, yeah. like the major headlines in my feed are the all these UFOs that are being shot down in Canada and Alaska and then <laughs> yeah. this train crash. It's very depressing. Yeah. No, it definitely is. But no, it plays into like all of the stuff that we have talked about in these last few episodes about how does social media uh, manufacture the information that we're, we're reading and can we trust the things that we're reading on social media? Are they vetted and things like that? And yeah. How much information um, are companies or governments, how much information should they put out to the public? How much are they responsible for? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. No, and um, uh, I, I want to get back to, you know, some of the things that we're talking about in John Davis' class. Um, but um, in my studio class with uh, Justin Harcher, we're having a lot of conversations about something called like the commons. So like the commons was like this old idea where people could raise their, their animals and, you know, plant crops and all that. Um, and it was shared, right? And everyone kind of worked together in terms of how they used use that common space. Um, but in our world now, it's like that, that common space is kind of like evaporating that that concept is, is kind of like being removed or being pushed out from our society. And, um, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of decision-making, uh, you know, politics happens at this level where you have a space, right? And that's ultimately all, piece of land where you have a group of people, you have a space and you have to decide, okay, how are we going to use the space? How are we going to use the resources? Um, and it becomes especially tricky when there's like limited resources, right? So if there's like water, right? So we, we talked about Spain the other time. Uh, I'm not sure when you did, we were doing research in, in Spain. Did you learn, ever learn about the, the Huertas or the H-U-E-R-T-A's? No, tell me okay. about them. It's, it's really interesting. So like the, the Huertas, I, you know, from what I understand, it's like these like vegetable gardens, right? We have all these farmers and they, they're, they gain access to the river and the water and they have to like negotiate, okay, how can we determine, like everyone's getting the same amount of water to plant their crops, right? So this yeah. is in a region where there, there's, there's not an abundance of water. And so there has to be systems of like self-policing. There has to be systems of like, uh, um, you know, governance in terms of like having a board. Um, and apparently, like, they have, like, this board in Spain for, like, uh, I can't remember the city, but that's been there for, like, hundreds of years, right? So, obviously, the pushback is some people have this this idea, this scarcity mindset, like, well, when there's a scarcity, it always just leads to violence, things just go crazy, and there's, there's no solution around it. And one thing that we're trying to uh, reintroduce, like, in landscape architecture is, like, no, um, when people are educated... Uh, we hold each other accountable. We can develop a system. We can make decisions together. Yeah. Right. Versus like everything has to be hierarchical and there has to be an outside entity that tells you how to use the resources. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, it all ties back into like our understanding of democracy. How do we people work together? Um, how do we solve very practical problems together? Um, overcome, achieve, um, 
and yeah, like this the situation with this uh, train wreck that's happening. How do we um, how do we bounce back? How do we um, hold people accountable for for decisions that were made? Um, yeah, I'm sure that'll be a developing story. Of course, <laughs> I think people are going to want to know why they decided to have the response to it that they did. Like, why did they decide to burn it off? Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming they probably took into account the safety of the recovery team first and foremost and, and safety of like the people living in the immediate area, but still that's a hard decision to weigh. Like, are we going to release all this yep. into the awesome. air or do we take the risk of it exploding and, killing workers or people in the, in the surrounding area, like either way, it's yeah. not great. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you're, yeah, you're picking the, the worst of two options. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, but then, back, yeah. sorry, no, you talk about that. It's like, what responsibility then does the, that rail line or whoever was shipping it, what responsibility do they have to that community for the damages that they've caused? Right. Yeah. And how's, you know, I mean, there's so many people who, I mean, I'm sure those chemicals, they were going to somebody and they were expecting those resources and now those resources aren't there. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, from a business side of point, do, do they have like insurance? And like, there's just all these like other parties and factors that are all being impacted by the supply chain. The people who are going to use those resources, what were they going to use it for? Right, were there orders that needed to be fulfilled and yeah. know, business that had to be done? So, but yeah, yeah. I um, see. I think that part would be should be relatively easy to price in and easy to insure. But then, how do you determine the cost to that surrounding area? How many streams were poisoned? How many trees? How many are going to die? How many? How much wildlife in that area is going to die? Things like that, where there's not actually a really a hard dollar amount attached to each object. I'm sure that's probably a profession in itself, going in and assessing costs like that in terms of catastrophes. Yeah, I mean, I've had to take a stab at it. I'll probably say the EPA is running some numbers right now as we speak, trying to figure out what's you know what's the damage that's been done. So, but. Yeah, I, I was just gonna um, come back. You know, like you know, we're we're finishing the the reading, and um, it's really interesting now that I've kind of had John Davis for for a few weeks into my semester. How a lot of the the conversations that we're having, you know, that they're being held in this book are also being held in our class. Um, and it's really interesting, actually. Our last class, we we were just talking about trains, so we're mm -hmm. talking about how trains as the corporation had a very huge influence in terms of how we understand corporations in our day, like how the military had an influence. A lot of the new engineering concepts have an influence in terms of how corporations are structured, the engineering that's used, uh, the, 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 the mentality in terms of how trains were being made um, and how that obviously led to like expansion and developing of the American landscape. Um, and it's really cool. Like we, we, would go through class and we have like um, pictures that he shows us in front of class, you know, in front of the, the classroom. And we see like, there's the, so the human instruction. These are paintings, right? These are really old paintings of 
like you have the infrastructure there, then you have like the American landscape, and then you're you're looking to see, okay, what does the artist care about, or what is he trying to capture, right? So when you show like a storm, right, just like crashing and destroying a bridge or something that's like man-made, kind of like trying to convey like the folly of, of man and the, um, uh, the the great you know force of nature that man is always you know incapable of facing all the time so uh, yeah like we, we we do these like photo analysis I'm, I'm pretty sure we have an assignment coming up soon here where we have to like you know study the photo and give our feedback and tell what is the story that's that's being told and you know vice versa if you have like a big train or we're glamorizing you know the big the you know gargantuan kind of um, man-made structures to celebrate human achievement. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the greatest stories of humanity is how does man with technologies or systems that he's created, how does he interact with his environment? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge epic. I mean, it's even timely, like when you look at, you know, what's, what's happening, you know, in Turkey, you know, it's like the, the earthquake. You, you see, like, once again, these very natural disasters just continue to happen, right? And obviously people are always predicting, oh, these things are going to happen more, or like global warming and all that. But, like, even before then, you know, maybe even on a smaller level, like a forest fire or, you know, uh, a flood could just, like, wipe out a village or, you know, some things that we're, we're still serious for humans in, in that specific time and place, but will continue to happen. And it's, like, it's just, like, this, like a reoccurring reminder almost of, like, the human struggle that is like always, always there. Um, and you know, like the, the devastation, the trauma, the, the loss that happens. Um, but also like the challenges, right? Like when you're trying to build a civilization, you have to go up against nature. You have to check the soil. You have to check the water. You have to check, yeah, you know, weather patterns. Um, and you have to look at your materials. What do you have available? What can you buy? What can't you buy? And you have to start building all these things. Um, so it's just very interesting, um, you know, when nature comes and you've built all these things and it you know, just takes it all away and then, you know, you have to find, come up with new solutions. They're like, okay, well, earthquakes happen in this region. How can we prevent, you know, earthquakes in our buildings and how do we, um, yeah. So anyway, it's, it, 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 it's, it's a great class and it's a great topic. And, um, I guess we can jump into a little, little more into the book. Um, yeah, like, I mean, no, that was yeah. a good I liked this conversation. It was more organic and it wasn't directly along the lines of the book, yeah. but it was still pretty adjacent to what I think we're going to get into. Because I ultimately, yeah. democracy, democracy is a system that we're trying to use to control human behavior or human interaction. Um, and that's it's one been, of the, that's one of the tools yeah. that we use to sustain ourselves. And I don't want to frame it as like a battle against nature, but in our interactions with nature and the environment. So it's really interesting. Like you use the word control, right? Control human behavior. And um, one thing we, we spoke about in our recitation and as part of our reading, um, but we talked about like even the words that we use to describe nature, even the language that we use to talk about our imagination or our political imagination or, um, our landscape imagination, our spatial imagination. Um, it's, it's being informed by certain stories and narratives. So we're constantly in the class, not constantly, but part of the class, we, we would study, okay, like 
how did um, European civilizations, uh, stories, um, uh, legends inform their understanding of the landscape and how the Native Americans' uh, lifestyle, um, narrative stories, legends, cost and for them how they view the landscape, right? So um, from the European, like we, we, would, we would start reading about how like all this like folklore of just like, oh, the, the environment is dangerous, stay, stay out of the woods, you know, there's there's ogres, there's, or not ogres, but like there's all these like, you know, crazy mystical creatures out there. This is like, not just like, I'm talking like really, really old, like probably before middle ages, yeah. European understanding of the landscape. Um, and then obviously with, with, with Christianity in terms of how like there's this idea of Eden and man has fallen from Eden and uh, um, what is uh, uh, the narrative that's being told and how, what, why is it that you look throughout history, men are always comparing their like their ships, their, their land, their farms, their tools to like women and using very like descriptive words. So talking a little bit more about, you know, the culture, but then he also uh, brings in the Native American perspective and you know, how, how they have legends and stories. Um, so I think that's also like, it's very interesting. Like, you know, we're talking about these big philosophers writings. We're talking about these really big uh, words and all that. But if you actually boil it down to like, think about like the, the books that you were read as a child or think about the stories that you were told as a kid, um, how that has a very big influence in terms of how you begin to see things. So, you know, a little, long, long spiel there, but um it, it, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's. I feel like this conversation is more organic because a lot of the things that we're learning outside of, you know, this book are starting to like synchronize with with other discussions that are happening. Um, and I, I, I imagine a lot of these conversations that are being held in this book are being held in a lot of other contexts, and um, people are touching upon different aspects and pieces of the yeah of the, of the full puzzle. Um, yeah. No, I find that stuff very interesting. I always find it a little difficult to try to figure out which texts or which stories are really influential on a group of people, particularly at a specific point in time and things like that. I feel like it's very, there's so many different, every culture has so many different foundational stories that I think it can be easy to select different ones out that fit you know maybe their actions at the time yeah so it, it is interesting though though like there there are some like very unique like like unifying like stories that it's just very interesting that yeah they come they're coming from different cultures but they have very very similar narratives so like um the one that comes immediately to mind is like the idea of like the great flood mm-hmm. right and like how the great flood isn't just like documented just in like biblical texts but it's also being cited in other places and other parts of the world right um that this great flood is you know could have very well been like a universal human experience um now it's 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 like legend it's 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 kind of more like a folklore kind of thing um that's told or maybe just in religious texts um but there are certain stories that are very interestingly similar um about the human experience which is which is also think an interesting um, thing to take note of um, as we talk about these stories and how it influences how we think and how we behave and how we see things yeah and you could even see how a story of a great flood which is found in almost every culture as far as I know yeah, yeah. 
what how each retelling could shape put a different shade on it like you could tell it in a way of like oh we as man should create technology so that we never suffer from this again we make the best arcs in the world or something like that mm-hmm. or no right. we, we put our faith in a god and like this is what would deliver us from a flood or we need to change our relationship with nature so that we never get punished with this kind of cataclysmic event right right yeah absolutely um um, and, and, and that's the, you know, I think that's the, the story that, you know, that's a conversation we're having, I think, right now, um, even in terms of democracy, like, what are the stories, who are the figures that we hold in high esteem, um, and, and revisiting the stories. I mean, in, in Columbus, for the longest time, they had, like, the Santa Maria, like, uh, fake boat, right, sitting in the Scioto or Olentangy uh, River. Um, actually, I'm pretty sure it was the Scioto. Um, and now we're, you know, reevaluating this story about Columbus. Was he really this great guy who discovered the Americas? Or, you know, were there, was there actually a thriving civilization that was happening um, here? So it's been not even, I would say, even like in a children's book kind of context that we talk about stories, but even like in a historical thing, how we're constantly reinterpreting and restudying history. Um, but... Um, all right, let's yeah, yeah, yeah let's, let's try to let's jump into it, or else yeah. we'll never get started. And we are there's too many notes here. I think to even, I think this is going to be like basically the wrap up episode. But yeah, I think we've just scratched the surface with this book. Yeah, and the, and the topic truly, it's um, it's it's a very uh, very very deep topic. So, so yeah. yeah. I yeah, just took, no, yeah, I took a high level notes from chapters five and six. So we can just start with chapter five and the title of that is making the demos safe for democracy. Um, and the first idea that I keyed on there is he, he said, modern democracy cannot die. Um, the extension of that being the idea of the sovereign demos once planted cannot be fully eradicated from the political imaginary of a people who have glimpsed and experienced it as their collective right. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'll let you tee it off. <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I, I think what the, what they're saying is accurate. That when when people have come to understand that um, they're they're capable, um, they're uh, they they do have a perspective and they do have an opinion, um, and they've been brought into a space where that opinion is allowed to be shared and expressed and discussed. Um, that's kind of a hard thing to take away from a person again, right? Um, and to disallow them. Um, I think I think it's interesting though, like kind of the phrasing of, of what they're of what they use, um, like like a collective right. You know, when, you, when you kind of look at that that phrase like in terms of where do rights come from? So like we talk about like inalienable rights, like life, liberty, and property. Um, or we say that these are like God-given, you know, rights. Um, I think a little bit more explanation in terms of like the root of that idea could have been a little bit more helpful in terms of just saying, well, once they've tasted it, right? But is there something inherent and intrinsic to who we are as human beings that makes it that makes that our inclination towards wanting to have a democracy? 
Yeah, I think it totally depends on his time, his time scale of looking at it because historically there have been numerous cases where something resembling democracy has been the political system and it slid back into um, a more uh, autocratic rule or, right. you know, I mean, just looking at ancient Greece or Rome, things like that, where then you'll see like four or 500 years of really something that doesn't, doesn't represent what we would consider to be democracy after a brief period of democracy. Right. Right. So I think it is, it's kind of something special right now. And in some ways we should consider it to be special and not necessarily take it as a given. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you definitely, I mean, democracy is, a, I think something that's maybe problematic about that phrase is just like, Oh, it will just always be there and it, just, it will just naturally happen. Um, I think it kind of removes kind of the, the struggle and the sacrifice that is invested in terms of making, establishing one a democracy to maintaining a democracy. Um, <coughs> because, I mean, he kind of later on, he starts talking about like the, like the failures or different places where democracies haven't worked out. And obviously my point of reference is like, you know, the Arab Spring, right? And, you know, the, there's, there's a facade or there's a veneer of uh, democracy that's happening. Um, but, you know, they had a demo democratically elected president um, that was uh, uh, swept away with um, a uh, pretty much what was called a military coup, I think, unanimously um, internationally. Um, although there's like a 90% or 95% vote for... where This um, is Egypt or where else? Egypt, yeah, 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 in Egypt. So, um, you know, and, and, and you know, d democracies, I think, work differently in different societies, right? So um, I'll have to find you the article, but one of the one of the arguments in terms of why nation state and potentially even like by extension democracy isn't um, successful in in Middle Eastern countries is because our understanding of civil of citizenship is different in the West than it is in the Middle East, right? So sometimes when we're trying to import ideas, we're trying to take ideas of democracy, and we're trying to bring them into a new culture. Um, certain components aren't lining up with in terms of how the people act and behave. Um, and, and just the general furniture um, of how they think upstairs. Um, what is, what would the differences be there, like the key ones? The key ones, I, I mean, um, there, there, there's, I would say, in, generally speaking, in, in Arab or Middle Eastern societies, there's a general recalcitrance towards authority, um, and there's a general suspicion towards authority. Um, and this is like, I mean, even when I, I was, we were talking about Spain, <clears throat> talking about Spain in, uh, in my, uh, uh, my studio class, I was doing a little bit of extra research. Like even when, when Arabs, you know, they lived in, they lived in Spain, when Arabs and Berbers lived in Spain, there was always like revolts. There was always just like this pushback against authority and pushback against um, injustice and oppression, right? Um, which is sometimes justified, but it also makes it, makes things very always like politically unstable um, um i i think also just the family dynamics over in the middle east so i was one time speaking with a person who worked for the homeland security and he was you know we were just talking about you know the iraq war um and he was talking about how the u.s um 
completely underestimated and misunderstood the tribal structure that it, that was there in Iraq, right? Um, and that that has you know implications, right? When you have tribe, family, you know, brothers, sisters, uh, cousins, uncles, right? They function and they and they stay together. Their idea of being part of this like larger, you know, uh, federal government doesn't necessarily always make sense. Um, and especially when you, when you have like religion also involved where there isn't like a centralized, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, church or you know, institution for religion um, in these societies. Often the times the people who become educated in like, you know, during, during like uh, rituals, whether that's like for marriage or for, or for, or for death, right. It could very well be like your brother, your sister, or, your un- or not your sister, but you're like your brother, your uncle, um, and you know these are it's a patriarchal society so um, that also offers you know a certain kind of influence and sway um, in terms of how the how the people function so like you know now we're kind of moving into more like in terms of like separation of church and state um, and we're kind of moving in, in, into that topic in terms of how people can be um, uh, they work and they function a little differently um, yeah you can see how yeah. everybody's values you don't necessarily align your, your allegiances aren't necessarily always to the state first you you have other family ties religious ties other organizations yeah you have other other priorities and, it, and it's interesting too because like um even like this idea of like a company right it's um it's a little bit more fluid right like so like you have the family business is kind of like you know i feel like pretty strong in in places like the middle east where it's like there isn't like a big car company, you know, like, like obviously you have European car companies that do their business and sell their cars um, in the Middle East, but it's, you know, Arabs never, I mean, traditionally they, they've always had unsuccessful militaries. That's number one. Um, there's always just like a common reoccurring theme of um, failed militaries, um, state militaries. And two, there's a common reoccurring theme of like unsuccessful industrialization. So there, there hasn't been like, you know, an Intel, a Microsoft or an Apple or, um, where you see that in China, you can see that kind of work happening in China. You can see that kind of work happening um, in European countries, but um, Middle East is like almost like non-existent and impossible, really. Because why do you think that is? Um, I don't think it's a lack of education, right? Because there's there's plenty of institutions that are teaching, you know, Pascal's law. They're teaching Newton. They're teaching Bacon. They're teaching um, all this like Enlightenment thinking. Um, uh, what's it called? Like sciences, right? So they have all the all the education. They have all the tools. They they understand how these things generally work, right? Like they, they own cars. They own uh, like parts and stuff like that. Um, but I, I think it has to do with um, people's like commitment towards these larger institutions, right? And having I guess different like well, I, I think it ultimately comes down to family priorities, yeah. right? That if you were to dissolve like family structure, right? Where you are wanting to spend as much time in the company, right? Spending as much time in the factory, industrializing and tinkering and and innovating, then there could be a possibility. But when you have culturally, right? There's there's a huge respect that's given to the father, um, a huge um, investment that's made like, you know, from the father to his kids. these kinds of like relationships, I think, take a higher priority than a kind of a dream to like make a make a big airplane, right? Like that dream is not 
like seen as valuable as other other factors. And obviously, there's been people in in history, in Middle Eastern history, that have pushed for industrialization. And there are moments of you know small successes, but it, it's not like this like widespread you know commitment by a whole society to want to do it together. Yeah. So, and I, I'm sure there's other specialists who have studied this thing, but it's just kind of like no, my that's... first first person impression of, of how things are. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think there's definitely a cultural component to building the structures of corporations. Well, I mean, even you know, if we bring it back to the U.S. when we're when we're talking here, and and sorry, I, I forgot to mention, I do have to run at four. <laughs> so oh, okay. We, yeah, yeah. So um, you know, we have like <laughs> 17 minutes to try to cram. Okay. You know, really, we might really, have to do a part two then. We may, we may. <laughs> All right, um, we can move on to the next point. Move on. Well, um, no, I was, I, I was, I was going to say real quick, like even like you know, bring things, bring things back to the U.S. in terms of our culture, like right now, like here, here in the U.S. in terms of like um, people maybe maybe not wanting to work, right? Are we going to see the same level of innovation and interest in innovation? Um, I think what the authors here are hinting at is that we need to adapt and renew our social institutions um, for our community's needs. Yeah. So reevaluating, okay, well, we have these social structures. Are they really working the way we want them to for the, for the, for the goals and aims that we have in mind? So. Yeah, I think right now that's shifting, at least in America, I can feel that. Mm-hmm. The things that people are valuing, it seems to be shifting, or at least we're reevaluating things that maybe we had taken for granted in the past. Sure, sure. So, so many stories, just personal stories from friends. It was like during COVID, like they made a new decision. They, they pivoted out of something. They, they left a the company. They, you know, they got married or they got divorced and just a, a lot of different changes I feel like happened yeah. um, during that time period. All right, next point. Um, the elites of the political system existing prior to formation of democracy exist into the democracy and continue to dominate, which creates an imbalance and makes non-elites anxious or suspicious. Mm. So, and I think this was particularly in the context of the French revolution. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say here is I think that, yes, that this does occur some, um, and there, there probably would be more context needed to see if this is primarily about uh, young democracies like that have been recently formed within the last 10, 15 years or something like that versus even the United States, which is young, but maybe going on two to 300 years, you know, are the same elites in power now as with 300 years ago. I think the way that the U.S. is set up, there is still... Um, quite a bit of mobility in terms of status. Um, And I think that that's at least in part related to um, our economic systems. Mm -hmm. I I think that they, um, I think that people can move up. It's not easy, but you don't have to be born with status or money to end your life with status or money in the United States. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was reading, um, I was reading a Twitter thread. Um, I think it was also from Samuel Borgia. I think we've quoted him in previous episodes as well. 
but he was talking about how the New York Times has been owned by a family and how their structure in terms of how the family, uh, you know, remains control of the company despite it being, you know, employees can work at the company and you have, you know, other people can buy stocks and sell those stocks um, in the company. Um, they, they still found a way to maintain their legacy. And not all people who became super wealthy figured out a way to build intergenerational wealth and make sure that the wealth stays within the family. They, they structurally never, never figured it out or thought about it. Um, so, I think I if mean, you look yeah. at who are the great like billionaires of our time, like Bezos, Musk, Zuckerberg, things like that, I think that they probably some of them came from money but nothing like what they have now. Um, and they capitalized on a good start yeah. and took it to like an ultra wealthy position. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see a more like a breakdown of that and to see if people from that start with lower than them can really break through to like that ultra low, ultra wealthy level or, Mm-hmm. can advance themselves in status or how many generations does it take to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely the idea of just like money, you know, money begets money. Yeah. There's also like that, that concept of like when you're taking financial hits, you're taking financial loss. It's like it, it continues to just like snowball down where your failures just begin to compound. Um, where you create like a vicious cycle instead of a virtuous cycle of, um, you know, wealth creation where people are just kind of like trapped in this like economic, you know, whirlpool, if you want to call it that. I think there've been a lot of booms and busts in U.S. history. And I think there are some families that have been able to sustain their wealth. But even if you look at a lot of the, like what do they call it? Gilded age, like robber barons and stuff like that. Like the Vanderbilt uh-huh. family. Right. Um, I think they, the inherit inheritors of that blew through it in one generation to almost nothing. Wow. And he had like an insane level of wealth that had never been seen before. Right. right. Um, yeah. And again, I, I think, I guess just picking like little individual ones maybe isn't the most representative but I think yeah. there's a there's probably a, a balance between um, conserving status of people and allowing for um, social mobility and change. Right. Well, I mean, if you look at the Vanderbilts or even Stanford, like the, they, my understanding, both of them made their money off of the railroad tracks, right? Yeah. So, like. Part of it, I think it's just like timing and place, right? So we, I think it's it's unrealistic and I think it's dishonest to say like, well, you have this American, you could be like Stanford, you can be like, you know, um, whoever. And it's like, when that technology is tapped into and you have like government support for that technology and you have um, all these factors stacked in your favor, once someone has like tapped into that technology and is tapped into that, opportunity it's not like everyone's going to be like winning or having a great time you know so there's a limited number of people who are actually like quote unquote fulfill the dream 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like this like universal dream where everyone's gonna have a happy end at the at the very end. I think it's 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 really at the end of the day only a few people. Are gonna, yeah. Do you think that non elites? Which again, I I want to know yeah. what he characterizes elites and non elites. Like, is it based on status? Is it based on wealth? Does it have to be sustained for a certain amount of time? But do you think that non elites, whatever that means in our society, are anxious and suspicious of how? democracy is functioning right now or is this just one narrative i would say it is a narrative right now but i don't know that it's the main one i'm I'm not sure either but i i will say that the the experience right i mean when we talk about landscape you know just landscape architecture the urban planning talk about like the jeffersonian grid that the you know our cities are playing according to a specific mentality Right of like rationality, equality, you know, fraternity, you know, all, like you know, all these like you know, enlightenment ideas. Um, when you kind of move into a space, or you move into a city, like do you necessarily feel like you're you're equal to everybody who's like walking down your street, right? Do you feel a sense of community when you go into these spaces? And I I would argue that generally speaking, people don't, right? When you see that big bank skyscraper. Right. When you see that um, the, the road is dominated by, you know, large vehicles. Right. When pedestrians are pushed out, when cyclists are pushed out, um, that can have a very towering and alienating and consequently make people feel anxious um, experience. So even if we were going to step out of like, you know, the, the, the philosophical mentality, like experientially, when we walk through and we experience America, do we feel um do we feel equal with the with the person who's uh, who's a multi-million dollar? And it, and I think the most like an easier metaphor to kind of chew on is when you have a king. A king has a throne, right? The king sits on the throne, and all the subjects where are they sit, standing or sitting? Usually beneath the king, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of symbolism to our to our construction or, and our buildings and the kinds of feelings that we may have. Um, when we move through these buildings or we experience these buildings, like think of like a courthouse, like what kind of experience do they want criminals or people who are, um, what's the word? Uh, well, I mean, I think know, that's yeah. intentional. And I think that there's yeah. probably some good behind that, that mm-hmm. you should have some sort of reverence for the law. Yeah. As yeah. much as I hate saying that, like I, you know, like to feel like over a rebel um, of my own right most of the time, but I think you do come to find that there should be importance and weight placed on law. And, and the, the, there, the, there is there is some truth to that. Um, I would challenge, you know, our architecture of you know government buildings to say, does it really reflect the culture and the attitude of the people? Right, like when, when people see a government building or they see a police station, are they necessarily seeing a reverence to the law when they feel that that institution has been um, hasn't been serving justice? So, fun fact, right? So, Columbus, our court, our courthouse was built over an Indian mound, and this wasn't just any like some Indian mounds were just like Indian mounds, and th- there was a ritual behind it. But this was actually a, um, a grave Indian mound. Right, 
So you, ha you have this building of justice that is built on top of and cleared an Indian map. Right? So some people are like, you know, the, the history of, of that building, the um, even the people who, who come through the building, right? People who do have um, problems, family problems, where they're people who need help. They don't necessarily need justice, right? So that system of, you know, fast and, you know, expedient, you know, uh, justice to serve serve justice swiftly um, it's it's often hurting people anyway I'm, I'm, I'm going down a, a, a weird uh, a weird trail but um, I think a lot of this yeah. comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of what stories are we telling ourselves about about things right about these buildings right yeah. It's ultimately it people yeah. that are interacting with the landscape. So yeah, I can see how everybody can have a different interpretation of a place. But I mean, if 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 we're if we're talking, if, you know, if we're going to be serious about a you know a, a a democracy, right, and you know, regenerating a democracy, right, um, are we to be inclusive of all the stories? Are we to be exclusionary of certain stories? Are we going to prioritize one story or narrative over over the other? Um, and how do we work across these stories? And I think that that's yeah. been one of the features of America is that you can at least have that conversation for the most part. Yeah. And that it is somewhat fluid to continue to change narratives. And... Yeah. And, and keep certain ones and, um, you know, maybe portray two, two understandings of that, uh, that narrative and story accurately versus completely marginalizing one um, and not allowing that to be uh, about to be um, heard. Um, let's, let's try to hit one more point um, for, before we got our run. Okay. You have one that you want to hit. I had one. Um, so he said in chapter six, the structure of the democratic generations and the paradigm direct action. Um, I think it's the second point: first generation and taming class struggle. All non-nomadic communities are marked by contentment yeah. and enduring conflict between an elite and non-elite. Ah. Yeah, I. What do you think of that? During conflict between them. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, like non-nomadic, right? Like you have people who are set, settled or committed to a specific land. Um, they're committed to a specific area, um, and they're almost in a sense like landlocked, right? And they're they're brought into this um, system. And then you have people who are who are elites, and uh, I think generally, like elites, they have more freedom, so they can hop on planes. Or everything in terms of the Roman times, you can hop onto a chariot and like, you know, run across different cities. And you have this non-nomadic person who is um, pinned down in this space, um, and that creates a conflict. That person doesn't have the mobility and the freedom to do certain things as the person who is an elite. Um, and it's interesting because um, Ibn, Ibn Khaldun, he kind of talks about this in his uh, Prolamona, where he talks about how it requires you to have a nomadic people 
and to have like a civilizational force that's able to bring nomadic people into like almost in a sense domesticate or tame them as well so the, the, that idea i think is like kind of being touched upon here um in that statement yeah i guess i took it more to mean that he meant all established civilizations basically every like of a city that's been founded mm-hmm. in context to nomadic communities not necessarily that he meant that elites had greater mobility than non-elites although i think you could probably make that argument but i think we've continued to extend mobility to most people and the cost is costs associated with mobility have continued to come down right and, and, then, and there's still like that initiative and interest in terms of how do we make transportation modes more accessible i think i would i have more of a, a contention with the whole statement i don't necessarily think that all social interactions are founded on some form of power struggle no due I, to I, yeah how resources are distributed yeah no i i i would i would agree that with that statement as well i think there are many other priorities that people have in terms of their social relationships that um you when you look at a resource it's not just about oh i just need to come and take this resource or everyone is just kind of this rational being who is just competing over resources i think there's you would argue an irrational part of the human psyche or the human behavior that works in ways that would um contradict a perfect scenario where people are just kind of like these machines who just want to consume. Um, like I think about like any humanitarian cause, right? Like why would humans who have resources want to give and distribute it to other humans or give something from what's their, theirs and their own and forsake that um, during a flood or earthquake? Yeah, I think... I don't know. I think that statement is kind of just taking certain Marxist uh, ideals and kind of running with them to an extreme. But yeah, and I think you could come up with like countless counterexamples to that. Um, but what did you think of his tamed class struggle? So it's, it seemed like he was saying uh, politics in general, but particularly democracy are a way to tame class struggle into something that's non-violent or not as violent. Um, and then now he's saying that this taming of the class struggle that we maybe once had is starting to break down. Mm. Well, I think it's, it's, it's natural and it's realistic that there's always going to be some conflict, right? Um, I would maybe say that, you know, I'm bringing back to some of the things that we're discussing in our, in our studio class is democracy, I think, is a, is a way that we mitigate and we prevent people from going, you know, without asking for permission. Like, imagine if I, you had your calculator and I just walked over to your desk and just kind of took it, right? Um, you know, think of that on, like on, a, on a larger scale of, like, not asking for permission for resources and taking things that don't belong, um, what that causes. Um, so I, I guess I do kind of agree that, you know, a democracy or having some sort of system in place prevents people from 
infringing on each other's rights and there being no custom or norm in terms of how people are supposed to work together. Um, is democracy the only solution? Does it always have to be democratic? There's like a whole like list of different ways of like governance that exist. Democratic. So if you're just focused on democratic, you can find many, many ways in terms of how to share resources or distribute resources that are particular to different cultures and societies. Um, and even in non-democratic context, you can also find other ways to do it. So I don't know, just kind of my like initial thoughts on that. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up here if you've got to, if you got it wrong, but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I think we've, we, we hit some on really good points, um, in this, uh, in this podcast and, um, it, it's cool to see, I would just say like, you know, I'll end of this, it's really cool to see how a lot of these, um, points that we're talking about now are, are happening in other spaces. And, um, I think, you know, I'm going to say I'm coming from a landscape architecture background, um, and civil engineering background, and I'm, I'm studying these things, but I'm sure the economists are kind of having conversations in terms of like finances, talking about credit cards, talking about like mortgages, talking about like all these other sorts of like, you know, things that are also pretty important for our democracy as well. But, you know, everyone's kind of having these conversations, I think, from their own corner, from their own spaces. Yeah, I think democracy works best when our economic system is also working well. (laughs) I think it's only when people start to hurt economically that they really start to question if democracy is working for them or not. Yeah. There, there begins to be some, some anxiety. Um, so it's, it's better, I guess, even in terms of unequal distribution of resources, if we're cutting up a growing pie and not a diminishing or equal pie, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because then it's, it's less of a like zero sum game and becomes, Hey, we both can help each other out. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, and it's, uh, I think that's kind of always a crossroads that has, like, we, we're constantly going to come across as humans because there's, there are always going to be those dilemmas, right? Where there's not necessarily, and it, it's really cool. Um, I wish I could show you the, the chart, but pretty much like people have created these little like decision trees that, you know, there's a situation where only one person wins and the other person loses. And there's a situation where both win there's a situation where both lose, right, in those specific, you know, contexts or situations of, like, resources or um, finances or whatever. Um, but uh, if people, they come and they, and they discuss these things, okay, what's the best way that we all win? Because we all care about each other. We all see each other as humans. Yeah. Then you can come up with, like, a, some sort of solution to, to, to all of it. All right. I'll let yeah. you go. I have a yeah. lot more to say, but... Yeah. We'll keep this one short and sweet. Um, the part two, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Yep, take it easy.